The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about high conflict in divorce, and especially how really it affects kids. And, you know, I've been dealing with this with divorce mediation for many, many years, and it is just heartbreaking what people go through with their children and the conflict that the kids experienced and my own kids experienced it. So I, I really was thrilled to find uh, um, this book called The Black Hole of High Conflict, Your Child's Safe Guide for Navigating High Conflict Divorce and Custody Issues. And this is by Brooke Olson. And actually, he was referred to me by a friend who went to one of the workshops. So I was just thrilled to uh, have him on the show. And let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we were excited to have him join us from Encinitas. Brooke Olson founded the High Conflict Diversion Program in 2006, and he continues to direct its evolution. Brooke is a certified parenting educator with the International Network for Children and Families, a certified divorce mediator and life coach. And Brooke's training includes six years of study with Dr. Michael Mamas in the field of transpersonal counseling, trauma counsel uh, counseling, and meditation. Brooke completed three years of training in trauma resolution through the Foundation for Human Enrichment with Peter Levine and is a certified somatic experiencing practitioner. And Brooke is a licensed holistic health practitioner and certified clinical nutritionist. And he is also trained in interpersonal communication and high conflict resolution. So this is great training. And the name of this book, I said, is The Black Hole of High Conflict. I have it right in my hand. It's a great book. And the subtitle is Your Child's Safe Guide for Navigating High Conflict Divorce and Custody Issues. And we're going to talk about him. But if you want to pull up his website while we're talking, go to highconflict.net. Thank you so much, Brooke, for joining us this after this morning. How are you? Thank you, Mari. I'm doing great, Mari. Thank you for having yeah. me. I'm doing great. And, you know, I, I got a kick out of I was looking at in, in your book, you have the indicators of high conflict divorce. And right now I have this divorce mediation that I'm doing, and I think I could check every single box on here. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 giving it's great for me to um, whenever I have somebody who's really, really difficult, I always say to myself, this person is my best teacher. I'm learning patience. I'm learning to really, you know, hone in on those skills that I've been learning for 26 years, and uh, I try to look at it in the positive. You must have the same kind of issues, huh? 
yeah, working with this working with this group of people is um, it's highly educating, and it never <laughs> ceases to amaze me just the new stuff that comes up from from day to day working with them. Yeah, it's um, and you know I remember many years ago when I was going through my own divorce, and I used to give this book away in my early years of practice. But there's there was a book called Crazy Time Surviving Divorce. I don't know if you ever read that book. But it, it basically says that everyone who goes through a divorce is insane during that time, which I really believe. And then some people are even uh, crazier and, and more high conflict. And it's, um, it, is, it is really so detrimental to their own being, right? Yeah, you know, the, the people that get involved that, that are going through divorces and, and they start to engage in the custody disputes over the kids, um, it, it's just kind of like a runaway train. And and the thought process that goes along with it, and and how the how the court system and the legal system um, enhances the problem is is just it's insane. I know. So let's talk a little bit about custody in the area of custody conflict. What do you see as the major contributing factors? Well, I, I think the major contributing factors, just off the get go on a on a lower scale, really have to do with just the basic fear of of the parents going through it, not really knowing what's going to happen. And put on top of that, the, the psychological profiles of the people that really tend to fight over um, custody really become a, a huge factor in it as well. And so let's let's talk about some of the indicators that you have in here. I think these are really important and people can kind of check off if they're listening and they are going through a divorce or they've been through one or they're anticipating one. They can kind of maybe check off in their own mind whether they are really going to be in or they are in a what you call a high conflict divorce can you share some of those indicators well you know the, the indicators that I that I've put in my book um, Mari are just really kind of check off about right um, the places where people are going to um, start to have negative uh, negative advocates from their attorneys that they start to um, have Training orders filed against them. That um, the, there's a withholding of one of the, the children uh, or the children from the other parent. That uh, there's the, these arguments about um, the other parent's ability to parent. The the times that have been spent in the marriage or in the relationship with the child and who the major um, parenting the person with the major parenting time. And these become the arguments that start to compile. And I think if you look at my book and and some of the stuff that I have online, I've got like 21 of these indicators. And yeah, let's talk about them. Like, here's, here's one of them. Um, there was a large power differential in the relationship where one parent had huge control issues. That That is a big one, huh? It is a huge one. And, you know, there's, there's places where, um, you know, personality traits start to come in here. Uh, narcissism plays its role. Borderline behavior plays its role. But these power differentials... Um, you know, you'll have somebody that was controlling the money um, and or really controlling how the, the family dynamics work, autocratic parenting styles. Um, and and these these patterns continue into the into the into the separation, into the divorce, into the custody issues. Right. And then and, the person who had less power gets hugely angry. I mean, that's how I see it is. If one person had the power, then the other one is just, re yeah, is either really trying to get revenge for all that power, or it continues and one feels victimized, right? Right, right. And and the pushback on that, you know, some of these, a lot of these people will start to seek professional help, and the counselors will, will get a hold of them, and they'll 
tell them that they have to become empowered and they have to start doing things and, and pushing back. And when they've been dealing with somebody with, with these types of issues in the relationship, that profile tells us that, you know, if, if we weren't dealing with a divorce, we weren't dealing with children in custody, we might approach it with, you know, really trying to empower this person and, and, and whatnot. But from the perspective of what I'm trying to teach the parents that are going through my classes are to really start to, to feather that piece back and, and look at their um, look at their empowerment from a different level in terms of just really setting boundaries but not pushing back, um, right. setting boundaries but not defending themselves, and just really starting to take a, a, a position of disengagement more than anything else, and then starting to understand the personality dynamics that are there and using the tools that we create to um, help them move through the process better. Yeah, you had a quote here. It says... Um that, that you quoted Seneca, it says, uh, a quarrel is quickly settled when deserted by one party. There is no battle unless there are two. <laughs> I love that. And it's I, I tell the same thing to my clients. I go, okay, you don't have to get mad if you don't agree. You could just say, I teach people, I say, say these three words. This is your mantra. I'm not comfortable with that. How about this? You know, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable, you know, because otherwise they go, absolutely not. I'm never going to do that. And then of course it becomes this, this fight, right? You know? And, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I I tell people, you know, it's a proposal for custody. Let's talk about what works and what wouldn't work. You know, what is the attitude of, of people when they first enter the high conflict diversion program? Well, you know, those, many of the people that come to the program are court ordered, and um, there's there's many of them also that aren't. But the first the first piece of the people that are coming to the to the program are, oh, I've been ordered to this. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. I didn't, you know, I'm not the one that's causing this. It's the other parent. Right, and then and, they have a chip on their shoulder, and they don't even really want to listen. Right. Correct. But very quickly, they start to understand that what we're creating for them is is a whole different paradigm. A whole different thought process. We're we're changing their belief systems around um, what the what the court system's going to do or not do for them, and we start to take them in a in a, in a direction pretty quickly. That um, I I have many clients that come back far after the required twelve classes for the court, and for those people that come in that are um, that aren't court ordered that have been recommended just to try to find out some new ways of, of working with this are pretty um, you know they're skeptical at first because we're, we're a lot of what we're asking them to do is counterintuitive. And, you know, when we, we when we have people coming in with declarations from the other from the other party that are really inflammatory and I'm saying, don't respond. You know, right. these are things that you, you don't have to engage in. You don't have to defend yourself. Their first reaction is, is, well, if I don't do that, you know, it's going to be an assumption that it's true. And really not the way it works. And, and, and when we start to not fire back, it really starts to, to downgrade the, the levels of conflict that are involved. You know, it gets scary, though, when they're in court because they they don't know what the judge is going to do, right? So the judge doesn't get to hear everything. The judge sees paperwork, and that's scary. I think it's less scary if they're in mediation with you or they're in mediation with me because we get it. You know, we're going to give them an opportunity to be heard, an opportunity to uh, speak their piece, and they don't get that in court anymore. They don't get it. Right, right. They don't. But what they don't also understand, and, and I think you and I do, Mario, is that, you know, when, when this paperwork hits the judge's 
um, death, they're not looking at everything that's there, especially if it's if it's overburdened. And what they're really looking for, I think, is where where's this conflict being driven? How are the statements being made? How are the declarations laid out? And when you've got one parent that is just beating the other parent up, and there's nothing in it that has anything to do with really the children, and and focusing on that, and then you've got another set of declarations that isn't firing back and is very child focused. It it has a tendency to grab the the judicial's um, attention differently mm-hmm. and, and puts a different spin on it. Yeah, and the whole idea is to keep them out of court. You know, like if they can learn to um, kind of deflect this high conflict and start problem solving, then they can take the whole darn thing out of court. And that would be right. the best thing, right? And, and I that mean, is absolutely the best, the best piece that can happen here. And what our program is really trying to do is, one, if the people are caught in the conflict, if they're caught in the court system, is to show them ways out, to get them to, to find ways to get out of the system and and solve the problem on their own. And what we would really like to see more, and my goal in this uh, this program as it moves across the country, is is to get people in the classes ahead of the curve before they file or at the time that they're filing, so they have got these tools and they can start to work it. You know, I look at I look at um, divorce and, and and separations where children are involved, and and I think that more than more often than not, people are are angry. I mean, there's anger going on here, and the and the levels of conflict are naturally going to be higher. And I like the idea of parallel parenting really more as a as a first um, level of, of choice rather than just co-parenting because it starts to give parents some sense of autonomy. They can make their own decisions. They don't have to talk to the other parent in, in, in these issues on a daily basis that have a tendency to cause conflict. And if we can get them feeling that they, they can make their own choices and they, they can do their own things and they don't have to talk to this person that they really don't want to talk to, that it gives the, the conflict, the initial conflict, a chance to settle. And then coming back in and co-parenting becomes a lot, uh, just a whole lot easier. Okay, so why don't you explain for my audience, what do you mean by parallel parenting? Well, the, the parallel parenting model is is really set forth and it's been around for, for a number of years now and is becoming more and more popular, especially in high conflict cases, but parallel parenting basically says that um, each parent has their own parenting style, and the other parent isn't going to try to get the other parent to parent the way that they parent. In other words, they are fully autonomous in their process, and that the decisions that are made in the separate houses are made um, autonomously, and that the children are going to adapt to the different rules in the different houses. Children do this everywhere in their world. They have different rules in school. They have different rules in daycare. They have different rules when they go to different houses. I mean, the, the children are adaptable to different rules. And as long as they know what they are and they're, they're clear, this isn't a problem for the children. Right. And then the places where they have to come into agreement around um, stuff for the school, stuff for, um, for medical care, things like this, these are the these are the places where there is communication, but it is it is minimal. It is it is directed at, at solving the problem for the kids, and then again giving these these parents room to have their own their own life without the person that they are separating from. Yeah, and and so I just wanted to clarify because before you can even get to parallel parenting, you have to have a custodial agreement in terms of who's where at what time and when and who picks up and who delivers and you know who has every other weekend or whatever so so you do have to have a parenting agreement and 
Yeah, it's understandable that, you know, people have different styles um, and, and those you can't expect your ex-spouse to have the exact same style as you. And that's understandable. But you do. And I just wanted to clarify that you do have to have an agreement as to, you know, who's going to have the kids when, how are you going to have, are you going to have joint custody? What are you going to do? What is, what is the, the period back and forth, the, the joint physical custody and all that stuff. And then of course you've got that, uh, like you said, healthcare, it has to be agreed upon, um, schooling has to be agreed upon. But, um, I think nowadays most people do parallel, uh, parent because they, you know, you can't expect the other parent to be exactly like you or have the same rules. I remember even when I went through my divorce and the kids were different, I tried to see if my spouse would agree to certain rules that I had. And we went to, you know, counseling together and I couldn't get him to agree. <laughs> right. So right. I just said, okay, when you're at my house, this is this is what happens when you're at dad's house. This is what happens. But unfortunately, sometimes that backfires because if you have certain things about, you know, you, you can't watch TV till homework is done and the other parent does, then, you know, they unfortunately they may want to be at that parent's house where they don't have to do those things. Well, you know, Murray, you know, that, that's a that's a really good comment. And, and I'd like to I'd like to answer to that just a sure. little bit. You know, yeah. I, I, I think by and large. Children are looking for structure. They're looking for direction, and I think that sometimes that may be their initial move. But I think, I think by and large, my experience is is that children move toward health. They move toward where they feel um, safe, safe, and and structure and and rules make children feel safe. And when there's no structure and they're kind of out there hanging on their own. Although they've got the sense of freedom, they certainly don't have the sense of safety in their world. And I think, although they may make that initial decision, that they, they kind of move back in the other direction at some point. Because, you know, parents that have this, this really permissive parenting style don't have a tendency to make contact with the children and, and, and have relationship with them in a, in a tightly held manner. So our children are looking for relationship with their parents. They're looking for parental time. And I think that the parents that display more of this structure and, and more of, of this connection with them um, ultimately become the parent of preference. Yeah. And, you know, as, as we both know, that the courts are, are have this tendency, by and large, to move toward a 50% or an equal share with the, with the parents, unless there's right. some major pathology out there. Right. And so how do you see that the courts actually, you know, kind of help to contribute to the conflict? Well, in so many ways, in so, so many ways. But, you know, the, the first thing is, is that the, the process, if, if attorneys are involved in it, um, many attorneys really know how to, to drag the process out. Right, right. And, and it creates a lot of fear, um, uncertainty. And when, there's aren't, when there aren't these initial um, agreements put in place or these ex- initial um, orders put in place, the parents are willy-nilly across the board in terms of trying to know where the exchanges are going to be made and knowing what times are going to, um, these things are going to happen. And the rules of the game aren't set out for for often months after the separation. And that ambiguity so it, is so scary for everybody, for the parents right. and the kids, yeah. Right. 
And then I think once once in the courtroom, oftentimes um, the the courts take a they don't want to make decisions. They they want the parents to make decisions, and they'll send them to counseling or they'll send them to classes, parenting classes, or a um, custody evaluator. They also send custody. them to custody evaluator because they hate to decide custody. They hate it. Right, 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 right. And then you know, oftentimes the custody evaluations come back and they're ambiguous. <laughs> so you know, everybody's in limbo and fear, and there's tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent in this process, and everybody's getting exhausted. You know, I often see my parents um, exhibiting um, symptoms of PTSD. From exactly. just being caught in this, this hammering all the time. So their, their, their nervous systems are at high alert. And what we're trying to do in our process, and one of the unique things that, that, that I've created in the High Conflict Diversion Program, Ari, is um, just using mindful techniques to really get people to understand the workings of their own nervous and to begin to find ways to intervene in this fight-flight process that comes in on a consistent basis in, this, in their world and, and get them to be able to orient to things that are really, their world's okay for the most part if they can, um, if they can intervene and not jump into this cycle. Right. So so let's say that somebody's listening in right now who is going through a divorce and they are going through some custody issues. What would be one of the first things that you tell them to do? Um, well, I think one of the first things that I would be telling them to do is to slow down, to um, not worry about the outcome here because they're going to be okay, and to really moderate their um, their responses to the other parent, really to stop um, stop communication in ways that that is going to be defensive or offensive to the other person. Keep it focused to the needs of the children and not to the argument of the divorce. Right, right. And, and, and to not respond to the bait that's thrown out for argument. Yeah, and what happens is when one person attacks, okay, then the other person reacts. So it's really important if you're going through any kind of conflict is to n- not use you messages. You know, if somebody... Um, has not picked up the kid on time. Don't say you're an idiot. You came, you know, you, you can never arrive on time. You just say, gee, you know, it's really hard for our child when, when you arrive late, can you, what can we do about this? Because he's really sad. So how can we make this work together? So he's not sad and you know, you can let us know perhaps what time you're going to come or if you have some you know, pull over and give us a call if there's traffic because our child is very sad instead of attacking. And I I try to give that as as a simple example, but I think people need to learn how to say what they want to say without an an accusation. Right. And and I I might take that a step farther as well, um, Mari. I, I think to a large extent, people separating or, or, or divorcing can have a really good idea of how the direction this is this is going to go. One of one of I, I it was either my counselor or my attorney at the time when I went through my first divorce made a statement to me and he said, "As with the marriage, so goes the divorce." Mm. So there's a predictability about conflict here to, to a large degree, and and if we can predict that this is going to head toward conflict because it was a conflicted relationship, then we can start to put some other things in place that that are I think a little even more restrictive than that um, in terms of the responsiveness to these to these pieces. I would say you know if somebody is showing up late. Know that calling them out on it is going to escalate it, and they're probably going to make a point to do it more. So if they don't react to it, um, it, it, it's likely to change on some level. 
So well, if this is something that's happening consistently, I would say, you know, know that they're going to show up 20 minutes late. Every time, take a book and read it and yeah. wait for them to show up and then move through that because it's going to be easier on the child when when, the, when that exchange happens. Yeah, and, and that's one option, and sometimes it doesn't go away. And so that's that's hard when the child has to get to soccer or the child has to get to, to something and the parent has to leave for work. So, you know, I kind of take it where, okay, Look, again, not as a blame, but just say, what can we do for, how can I be helpful to you and you be helpful to me? You know, do we need to change the time? What do we need to, do I need to take the child to to soccer? I think the problem is that people don't know how to problem solve. If they were in marriage and they're getting a divorce, they probably didn't get along. They probably didn't communicate well. So it seems to me what, what, what is so important for everyone going through a divorce and or any kind of conflict is to kind of just recognize that they if they attack it's not going to help they need to just say what is the challenge without saying a you statement and just asking for how can we make this better for our child and for ourselves um because i you know i think i i've i've had experience with my own clients that if if you ignore it um sometimes the party just keeps doing it just keeps doing it and just does is either oblivious or does it because it's it's a power struggle so anyway well we see it differently but let's go to another question um, what do you see as the foremost set of beliefs that stand in the way of parents getting out of the conflict um I have to defend myself. Um, I, I think that um, that one piece is one of the things that, that really gets in the way of them moving moving away from the conflict. Um, there's so much uh, stuff that is thrown out, especially in the, in the areas of high conflict, that is, is just, it's the lies are there. People do it all of the time. One of the things I tell my parents is, is if somebody says something that's untrue in a declaration, just simply say it's untrue mm-hmm. and, and don't get into the the, the both piece of, of trying to defend something that doesn't need defended. It wasn't true. It didn't happen. Move on. Yeah, and the I things, think. And the things that were that are true, respond to them in factual manners, and then don't go on and on about it, but just state the facts and move on. Yes. Well, believe it or not, we are out of time, and I just want to um, let people know about this wonderful book that you've written, Brooke. It's called the Hot, the Black Hole of High Conflict, uh, Your Child Safe Guide for Navigating High Conflict Divorce and Custodial Issues by Brooke D. Olson. And why don't you just give your website and it's time for us to go. Well, my website is highconflict.net, H-I-G-H, conflict.net. Well, thank you so much, Brooke, and we will keep in touch. Take, keep up the terrific work, all right? Thank, thank you for having me, Mark. Uh, okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. You've, been, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Join us every Monday morning right here at 8.30, and we hope to hear from you at our website. Uh, send us an email what's of concern to you about conflict in your life. Thanks. reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, 
I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we're welcoming Skylar Matson. He is a deputy sheriff with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And he's with the Community Programs Division and Drug Use is Life Abuse. He's in charge of the Next Step program, and he's been with the department four and a half years. Thank you for joining us, Skylar. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Tell us about the program, Drug Use is Life Abuse, and how it, what you offer to students you know, at the uh, schools, and what the message is that you convey. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Drug Use is Life Abuse, it has programs that focus mainly on sixth graders before they enter junior high, and 8th graders before they enter high school. And uh, the program that I'm in charge of teaching is called Next Step, and that's one that focuses on the 8th grade students. Now, uh, Next Step is a six-week program, and it focuses on current drug, alcohol, and tobacco trends. Uh, the program uses small groups, demonstrations, and uh, we promote a very clear no-use message. Uh, Next Step has kind of two key phrases that explain the program. Uh, the first one is nothing but the truth about drugs, and the second one is uh, kids teaching kids. Now, the first phrase refers to the fact that Next Step focuses on teaching students about the current drugs that are out there, you know, how they're used, what they look like, and the damage they do to the body. The truth is that many of these students will eventually hear about or, or see a lot of these drugs from, you know, friends or the Internet, and we seek to reach them with the truth first. Uh, the second key phrase is, is kids teaching kids, and this is the one that really sets Next Step apart from other programs. Now, uh, what this means is that we use high school students as mentors, and they teach the program to the eighth graders. And these mentors, um, they all volunteered to teach the program, and they take a pledge of abstinence from illicit drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. And uh, we have found that the eighth graders are typically a lot more receptive to the anti-drug message from the high schoolers uh, because, you know, they're the ones that are there and currently dealing with the issues of uh, drug use and peer pressure. So on one level, you know, the high schoolers, they teach the eighth graders about basic drug categories and their effects um, on, on short-term and long-term use. But on a different level, uh, they give these eighth graders the truth about what high school is really like and uh, how to handle themselves if and when they're ever offered uh, drugs, tobacco, or alcohol. And the message that they convey is, is so powerful, and it really proves to these students that they don't have to use just to fit in. Exactly, and that's... That's terrific. So we will have you back again to talk about the kinds of drugs and the trends that are happening. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate it.